Well, hello, friends, and welcome to another brand new episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles, for all of us who are looking for ways to explore faith and spirituality beyond the walls and the fences of institutional Christianity. Before we get too far into the episode, I'd like, as always, to remind you that you can find all of our content, including all the back episodes of this podcast, on our website, accidentaltomatoes.com. If you go and visit the website, you can find, again, all all of our episodes and a variety of articles on our blog side on issues regarding faith and justice and liberation. So go to accidentaltomatoes.com to find out more about what's happening in our community and the kinds of things that we're having conversations about. Accidental Tomatoes is the official content site for New Wineskins, a non-traditional, liberation-oriented online faith community rooted in deep, authentic conversation. New Wineskins is a member of the Reconciling Ministries Network and is open to anyone seeking to explore faith and spirituality on a deeper level. If you're looking for a community where you can express your deepest doubts, ask your hardest questions, and be welcomed unconditionally, feel free to visit one of our weekly Zoom gatherings. You can learn more by visiting newwineskinsnetwork.org. I'm really excited for you all to meet my guest for this episode, Dr. Tom Ord. As someone who believes that a big part of spiritual deconstruction and reconstruction is exploring different theological perspectives, Tom's work on open and relational theology has become really important in my own deconstruction process. Tom and I cover a lot of ground in this interview, so buckle up and please give a warm Accidental Tomatoes welcome to Dr. Tom Ord. I think if there's one typical thread of the testimonies of deconstruction that I hear and and, and fit my own life, it's that people begin to realize they can't be certain about everything they once were certain about, including whether or not there's a God. And this lack of certainty or this loss of certainty uh, is very unsettling at first. But um, to get past deconstruction and to maybe do some reconstructing, it doesn't mean that you go back to having certainty. <laughs> You're still uncertain. <laughs> it's just that maybe you've got some other things that you think are more plausible than not. Well, hi there, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. And I am so excited today to welcome Dr. Tom Ord to this episode. Uh, Tom, as you may know, is uh, an author and a um, an ordained Nazarene pastor and um, has been exploring this thing called open and relational theology that we're going to talk about here today. So, Tom, welcome to the podcast. So glad to have you here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation, Joe. Thanks. Thanks for thanks for taking the time to be with me today. Why don't you just uh, let's just take a minute and allow you to introduce yourself to the folks for anyone who who may not know who you are or what you're involved in, uh, and then we'll we'll just kind of go from there. I'm coming to you from a little town in Idaho, outside of Boise. I am a theologian. I direct a doctoral program in open and relational theology at Northwind Theological Seminary. All of my students are fully online, so even though the seminary is not in Idaho, I can be in Idaho <laughs> and enjoy the uh, the great outdoors and hiking and things. I'm uh, I'm an author, written about thirty books. I do a lot of uh, speaking and lecturing, and I'm a photographer. So those are some things uh, folks might be interested in. 
I, I tell you, if if folks aren't following you on Instagram already, they should because your photography is is stunning. So. Oh, well, thank you, thanks, Joe. Enjoy that. Enjoy that. Well, let's kind of dive in, um, you know, and talk a little bit about this thing called open and relational theology. Can you give us sort of just a, a primer? Um, what what do you mean when you use that phrase? What's it all about? Yeah, open and relational theology is like a big umbrella under which there's lots of ideas and diversity and kinds of movements. But what they share in common are the beliefs that God is open and relational. And by relational, we mean that God is not only influencing us, not only acting toward us, but also being influenced by us, being affected by what we do. God's involved in a giving and receiving kind of relationship. And um, people who read the Bible or who pray might think this is a pretty obvious thing. But um, if you do much reading in uh, classical theology, the, the, the big guns like Thomas Aquinas or Augustine or Martin Luther, John Calvin, You'll discover that they don't think God is affected by us. They don't think God is influenced. They use the word impassable. God is not uh, influenced by anyone, anything we do or creation at all. And open and relational thought rejects that view. The open word is a little more controversial and maybe a little more uncommon. It says that God moves through time like we do. So there's really a past for God and a future and a present. And I think that's the natural way most people read the Bible. But they then say, in some mysterious way, God is outside of time. But open and relational folks say, no, no, God's not outside of time. God is everlasting, but God moves through time moment by moment like we do. And perhaps one of the more controversial claims related to that says that the future is open and God doesn't determine what's going to happen, predetermine or predestined, nor does God even know with absolute certainty everything that will happen in the future because God can't know with certainty something that's not yet knowable and the future is not yet knowable. So that's open relational theology as the umbrella. Usually open relational folks also will uh, emphasize the primacy of love in God and that we ought mm -hmm. to be loving. Uh, mm -hmm. They usually talk about creaturely freedom and some other things, but those are the big ideas. Very, very interesting. And, and um, you know, in, in your books, you kind of talk about the, the scriptural basis for a lot of this theology. So it's not just coming out of thin air. It really is, no. you know, it comes from from rigorous theological study, right? That's right. Yeah. And open relational folks will typically say that they think the majority of scripture aligns with this way of thinking. Uh, some will say all of scripture. I don't go quite that far because I think that the scripture, the Bible isn't like a perfectly consistent and coherent book. But I think the majority of the biblical witness suggests that God is in real relationship with us and moving through time into an open and yet to be decided future. Yeah. It's so interesting. You know, you and I both kind of come from Wesleyan um, theological backgrounds. You're, you're a Nazarene and I'm a Methodist. And yeah. I, I always remember that John Wesley had, I think it was a John Wesley um, uh, quote that was something along the lines of God sees all of eternity 
as if in a moment. Um, Does that fly in the face of open and relational theology? It does. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to say John Wesley was an open relational person, but he wasn't. He, at least in his formal uh, sermons and writings, he thought God was outside of time. Now, once he got to talking about the scriptures, it didn't make a lot of sense to say God was outside of time. I mean, if God uh, learns something or repents as a change of mind, well, then how can God be timeless? And it doesn't really make a lot of sense. But Wesley didn't see that problem in his time. Yeah. It, he might have evolved into it if he had been given a I book. like to Wesley, think so. <laughs> Wesley seems to have evolved in his It's so interesting yes, he you did. Know, for, for those of us who, who come from Wesleyan backgrounds to study um, you know, his, his work. And, and you begin to see pretty quickly, really, how like he by the time he died, he didn't think the same things he did, you know, when he first kind of came into ministry. So. That's right. And what I think is maybe often overlooked or maybe maybe overlooked not even the right word and not known among Wesleyans is that John Wesley did not think that God had the kind of omnipotent power that most people think God has. In his sermon on Providence, for instance, he says that God can't change the past. God can't control free will creatures. Um, and so there's things, and God also can't deny God's self. So uh, Wesley, because of the logic of love, I think ended up rejecting at least the way that most people think about God's power. Yeah. Well, what you just said about the logic of love and, and that God can't control free will people, that's another sort of linchpin in your theology, isn't it? Yes. And in fact, you have a book called God Can't. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, do you want to, I, I don't know how much time you want to take, but to just to unpack that idea of, um, because I think that's, it's a very provocative statement, I think, to say God can't, you know, definitely, like whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely provocative. Although there's at least a half a dozen biblical passages that say God can't do things like God can't tell a lie. God can't grow tired. God can't be tempted. God can't deny himself, etc. But most people skip over those or at least don't, don't, <laughs> don't see those that are in the text. Um, I wrote a book that came out in 2015 that I called The Uncontrolling Love of God. And it asks the questions of randomness and evil in the world. It says, look, if there's really evil in the world and there's truly random events occur, then how are we going to make sense of God in light of these things? And I suggest that we could still believe in a God who really loves everyone all the time, but who is inherently uncontrolling. God doesn't have the kind of power that makes it possible for God to control everything. And random events are truly random, even for God, because God moves through time moment by moment, and things occur that weren't predestined to occur. And in that book, I proposed a particular way of talking about this uncontrolling love that I call essential kenosis. And it's the idea that God is God's self-giving love is always uncontrolling. And um, that that idea really resonated with a lot of readers. And I got lots of really great feedback that book won awards and all that sort of thing. But people came to me and said, you know, I really like your ideas, but I really want a book I can give my next door neighbor that's that's not an <laughs> academic kind of book. <laughs> and so um, I wrote God Can't, but that provocative title. 
as a way to give a five-fold solution, I think, to the problem of evil. Mm. I, I just, it really resonates with me. And, um, you know, I mentioned to you when we were kind of getting ready here that a lot of the folks who listen to this podcast are people who are experiencing some kind of, or have experienced some kind of spiritual religious deconstruction. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it seems like a lot of this really resonates um, with people who are having that experience, who have been, for whatever reasons, you know, the institutional church just doesn't really work for them anymore. Um, a lot of kind of very rigid theologies don't work for them. Um, and so, you know, the idea of open and relational theology and maybe, you know, process theology, and I, maybe we can talk about the difference between those two terms a little bit. Um, those kinds of things seem to be really attractive to folks who are trying to sort of pull apart their inherited you know, belief system and then put something new together. Why do you think that is? Well, from what I've seen from those who go through deconstruction and my own deconstruction, I see a kind of a sequence that often occurs. You know, people hear about God, they maybe are part of a church and they read the Bible and they're taught certain things about what the Bible can do and who God is. And then those things just don't fit the way they live their lives. Mm, There's yeah. this crash between the reality of life, whether that life is a life of, that in which evil occurs, or maybe it's uh, they hang out with a bunch of their Muslim friends and they turn out to be not devil worshipers. And they mm -hmm. think, oh, come on now, you know, how am I going to make sense of this? Or, or, you know, they end up uh, having a friend or they themselves are gay and they think, okay, now the traditional view says this must be sinful, but this doesn't seem right. So they run into a brick wall. And for a time, people will just get rid of all beliefs in God. Either they're atheists or they're functional atheists and they try to live life without any kind of uh, ultimate meaning or ultimate reality. And then, they usually start to see that that doesn't quite work very well. There are big questions that still need to be answered. Mm -hmm. And they find themselves kind of inclined to act in certain ways. And, you know, maybe they want to be against Donald Trump, but they realize that if they don't have some sort of ultimate basis for good and evil, then who's to say Donald Trump is bad if there's no ultimate good? And so they, right, start, yeah. they start sort of being inclined to try to move and find something. And along comes open a relational theology. And it says, look, there is really a God, a God of love, who not only doesn't control, but can't control, who welcomes everyone, no matter their race, their religion, their gender, their sexuality, wants the good of everyone, and not just humans, but all creatures on the planet. And people start saying, whoa, this sounds really exciting. I like it. Man, it's so different from what I thought. And then usually a couple of open and relational people come along and say, you know, it's not that much different from these portions of scripture. It's not so, <laughs> you know, you yeah, can actually yeah. align it more with the Bible than you may have realized. I'm not saying all the Bible fits it, but um, you don't have to throw out the Bible to be an open and relational theologian. Yeah, I, I, I think I mentioned to you earlier uh, in one of our earlier conversations, it's, it's far more orthodox, I think, than a lot of people might tend to believe. Um, it, it's not, it's not really out there. And as you've said, you know, there's, there's certainly scriptural basis, um, for, for this kind of theology. It's not, it's not really, you know, out in left field so much. Um, so when we talk about, um, 
when we talk about God in this way, one of the things that I think a lot of folks who are in that kind of deconstruction space are really kind of trying to define even who or what it is that we mean when we use that word God, you know, yeah. what we're talking about. <clears throat> and is it is God a being or is God being itself? Yeah. Um, or or something, you know, altogether different. Um, how, how what's your view on that or what would open and relational theologians say about, you know, the 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 essence of God, the nature of God? Um, you know, beyond I mean, God is love, I think is is pretty central to that. But beyond that, you know, what would we say about what who or what is God even? Yeah, well, let's go with God is love as our beginning point and try to think what the implications of that might be. Um, Love seems to be activity that tries to do something good in response to whatever the situation is. Now, if that's the case, if it's like an intentional attempt to promote well-being, flourishing, goodness, blessedness, whatever word you want to use, in response to whatever the situation is like, then that suggests that this God must be both an active and a receptive kind of being, agent, something. Um, And the traditional ground of being language has typically wanted to reject that kind of acting and receiving Mm. kind of view. So. Open and relational folks are more likely to say God is a being, a universal being, but still something like a being. Now, it makes it hard to imagine what a universal being might be. Because yeah. <laughs> when we talk about being, we say that being over there and that being over there. Whereas if God is present to all of creation, then there's no over there. It's everywhere. So I like to say God is a loving universal spirit. Um mm who's probably more like a being than not being, but um, isn't located in one place or time. Yeah. It seems to at least imply consciousness. If yeah. That, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. 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 And it, a lot of, um, I, one of the things that's kind of got me through my own kind of deconstruction process, which I'm discovering is something that never really ends. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. it kind of comes in waves maybe. Um, but, but Richard Rohr's writings have been really helpful uh, for me and for a lot of folks. And that kind of Franciscan notion that it, it you know, it's a, a, a panentheist sort of view yes. of, of God that um, allows for consciousness, but also kind of says God is fully present in all things. Does that also kind of track with open and relational theology? It does. The vast majority of open and relational theologians are panentheists, which means that all things are affecting God's experience. God is present to all creation, but also all creation is somehow present in God's experience moment by moment. And, you know, I think kind of going back to the deconstruction thing and you saying you're always deconstructing, I really like that line. Because I think if there's one typical thread of the testimonies of deconstruction that I hear and and fit my own life, it's that people begin to realize they can't be certain about everything they once were certain about, including Mm -hmm. whether or not there's a God. And this lack of certainty or this loss of certainty that people have. Uh, is very unsettling at first and probably remains unsettling to a certain degree. But um, 
to get past deconstruction and to maybe do some reconstructing, it doesn't mean that you go back to having certainty. <laughs> You're still yeah, uncertain. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that maybe you've got some other things that you think are more plausible than not. So it's not just, you know, everything's totally up in the air all the time. It's that I'm not 100% certain of these things, but this seems more reasonable than that. I'm more confident about this than that. And so it's that kind of way of living. Yeah. Have you also found maybe, uh, it maybe especially maybe in your in your pastoral life, um, it seems like when when folks kind of go down that path of deconstruction, you know, the 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 institutional church wants to say no, slippery slope, you know, and all of that. Yes. Um, but but in my experience, it tends to drive people deeper into trying to understand rather than drive folks away from. Yeah. Does that, does that, I think that fits. Yeah, it does resonate with my experience. I mean, the institutional church um, has a lot to lose when people go through deconstruction because Mm, the institutional church thrives on having people who are confident and sure of what they think. And then therefore they're going to act and they're going to, you know, be good tithers and they're going to show up and work at the church because they, there's certain God wants them to do that. And and all of a sudden you have people going through deconstruction. Ah, they're not as certain. I'm not saying they stop loving, but I'm just saying um, the institutional church can suffer because of that. Now, I think that's important, but um, I understand why leaders in those institutions are worried about deconstruction. Yeah, yeah. So from, a, from an open and relational perspective then, and, 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 you know, in communication with folks from more traditional sort of theological um, expressions, what do you do with like ideas like obedience, for instance, mm. um, when it comes to like, you know, the, this notion that we must be obedient to God? I, I think that's one thing that I find a lot of deconstructing folks really have a lot of trouble. Oh, with. yeah, I have a lot of trouble then, and I'm not deconstructing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's because obedience sounds like you're following the rules for the rules sake. Right. And, yeah. and I just don't think that's good. Um uh, I think that God first and foremost calls us to live in love, and when we respond to that call, then we're doing what God calls uh, God wants of us. Um, you know, there's an old movie that you look like you might be old enough to remember this. Movie. <laughs> the white beard. The white beard gives it away. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> the movie was called Princess Bride. Oh and, yeah. Oh man, one of my favorites. Yes. At the yeah. beginning of that movie, the Wesley is a farm boy and he's on the farm and and Buttercup comes out and tells him to do things. She says, farm boy, go fetch the water. Farm boy, go clean the stalls. And every time she commanded him, he would say, as you wish. As you wish. (laughs) And in the story, the narrator says that one day Buttercup realizes that every time Wesley was saying, as you wish, he was really saying, I love you. Wow. And I think when we think of that in terms of the transition that occurs in Christians who realize that God is first and foremost a God of love and that what they think are commands that they ought to obey are really God saying, I love you and I want what's best for you. And the reason you shouldn't murder, the reason you shouldn't steal, the reason you shouldn't destroy the planet is that I really want you to thrive, you and everyone. And uh, these, what sound like commands are really requests of love 
for your good and for the good of the whole. Mm. That puts a whole different perspective on the theology of the fall, right? Of you know, mm. the, the, because we we tend to frame that in terms of the disobedience of the first humans, whether they right. were literal or figurative first humans. And a, a colleague and I have been having this conversation. We've been trying to unpack that and, and think about what if that's not really a story about disobedience, but a story instead about exploitation. Oh. And if that's true, um, and it, it would take a long time to really unpack all of that. But um, if that's true, if that's, if, if the original sin, you know, we might, what we might call original sin is not really disobedience, but exploitation of others. That, that really gives you a different idea of what we mean when we say God is love, Yeah, you know, um, to say that God doesn't desire us to exploit one another, but God desires us to love and respect each other and to, to extend dignity to one another. Um, and when we don't do that, that's what disobedience really is. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then we all suffer, you know? Uh, Yeah. Flourishing does not uh, emerge because we've exploited one another in such a way that some get goods that others are denied. And it's just not, it's not good for overall well-being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to shift gears just a little bit and, and bring up something that you mentioned. You visited our new wineskins community the other night. And one of the topics that came up was um, the afterlife, you know, mm, what, yeah. what does an open and relational view? And I know when I say that, I know that's pretty broad. Yes. That I'm yeah. with, but not, <laughs> it, it's not a, 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 a community that all agrees and locks them. Right. But, um, but at least from your perspective, you know, um, because I think a lot of folks would say, you know, if God isn't in control, um, if God doesn't know the future, um, then, you know, what do we do with this concept of an afterlife? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I like to think there are four major views of the afterlife. And open and relational folks, you can find them in three out of the four. The first one, we'll call it the traditional heaven and hell view. That is, God sends some people to everlasting conscious torment and other people to everlasting bliss. I don't know of any open and relational thinker who believes in that view of hell. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's well, um, well supported by scripture. I don't think it fits the notion of a loving God. I don't think the punishment fits the crime. There's all kinds of reasons to reject the traditional view of hell. Another view on offer says that God doesn't send anybody to hell, but God annihilates some people. Mm. God either annihilates them actively by putting them through fire and they burn up or passively by not resurrecting them. And the upside of this view is that no one experiences hell everlastingly. But the downside, as I see it, is that it means that God just gives up on some people. God says, you know, I've tried three million times to get Joe to say yes to my love. I'm not going to give him three million and one. Tough luck. You're out. Um, And I think it's especially, even though I know some open and relational thinkers who affirm annihilationism, I think open and relational folks ought to be especially uh, against it because they don't think God knows the future. So (laughs) they don't think that God knows whether or not anyone will ever eventually say yes. But there are some open and relational folks who are nihilist, uh, annihilationists. Sorry. Third view is what I'll call classical universalism. It says that everybody goes to heaven, no matter what they did, 
because God has the kind of sovereign power to put everybody in heaven. God either does it unilaterally now, something like Karl Barth would would probably put it like that, or David Bentley Hart would say, God created everybody in the first place so that eventually everyone would be in heaven. But either way, everyone goes to heaven because of God's sovereign power. Now, I have problems with the classic universalist view. Um, For one, if everyone goes to the good place, no matter what they do now, it seems like we have fewer motivations to actually, you know, do good mm-hmm. now. Like, like right now, we're trying to fight climate change, and it requires sacrifice. But if everyone ends up doing great, no matter what they do, then you know, and this life is really short, then why make these self these sacrifices? Yeah. But even more importantly, I think um, if God's got the kind of power that can force people to go to heaven, even if they don't want to. Then why doesn't God use this power to stop evil right now? Like that's that's a real big concern for me. Mm-hmm. And so the problem of evil makes me think God doesn't have the power to send everybody to heaven no matter what, you know, even if they don't want to cooperate. So the fourth view, and this is one I call the relentless love view. It says that God always invites everyone to love in this life and the next. And God never gives up on anyone, ever, ever, ever. And people can say no to God. When they say no to God in this life and the next, well, there are natural negative consequences that come from saying no to to love. God's not in the punishing business But there are natural negative consequences to saying no to love. However, because God never, ever gives up, we have the hope that God will eventually persuade everyone to say yes. Mm. So it's it's kind of a a universalism without the guarantee that comes from divine omnipotence. But it's still a kind of universalism that says God, love really can win. Not through God's effort alone, although we require God's efforts, but also through our cooperation. Mm. It, that reminds me a lot of um, the Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis. Yes, you know, it's, it's very, it's yes. very similar to that kind of what he presents in that book. That 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 relentless love of God that some people just never, never, ever um, get for for whatever reason. Yeah. yeah, that's great. And actually that sparks a, a thought in me uh, of a sermon from John Wesley. I think it's in his sermon, The General Deliverance, um, in which he's kind of imagining, he's thinking about the afterlife. He's thinking about the salvation of creation. And um, he asked, you know, does God have the ability to coerce, basically? I think he uses the word irresistible. Does God have the ability to coerce everyone? Well, he said, no, no, God wouldn't do that. God, God believes in, you know, uh, uh, grants free will. So God's not going to do that. And then he says, well, you know, if God doesn't control or coerce, then what kind of hope do we have that God will eventually persuade everybody? And then he says this line, he says, it's as easy for God to save the whole world as it is to save one soul. Now, this is in the context of him saying that salvation comes from creaturely responses to God. Mm-hmm. 
So I always think of that and I think to myself, you know, I feel like God is saving me and I'm cooperating as best I can. I'm not perfect for sure, but I'm I'm doing what I can to enjoy God's salvation by cooperating with the call to love. And if I'm doing that, who's to say anybody else is worse than me in the world? <laughs> like, yeah. If God can save me, then why can't God eventually... Um, eventually convince everyone to say yes. Maybe some people are not as far along in their maturity as I am, and I'm not as far along as other people are. But if God never, ever gives up, then we have the genuine hope that all will eventually be saved. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. It it, it reminds me a lot of um, some of what Rohr talks about when he he kind of looks at the overlaps between theology, the, theology, excuse me, and like unitive theory and, oh, mm-hmm. you know, things like, you know, if, if, if it's happening to one, it's happening to all, mm. um, that kind of thing. I, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm wading into the shallow end of the pool on some of those, <laughs> <laughs> some of those theories that, that intersect with quantum mechanics and, yeah. um, faith and spirituality, but it's all, it's all really interesting to me. Um, Excuse me. The, the other thing I kind of wanted to ask you about that, that really relates, I think, to a lot of what we've been talking about is the issue of prayer, right? If, mm. if God is relational, then prayer makes sense. But if God is open and we're asking God to do like, where does that, how does prayer fit in? Is prayer useless in an open and relational um, theological stance? Is, does prayer look different? Um, do you know, what's, what is, what is what does prayer look like for open and relational theology? Yeah, I like to compare my view of prayer with three other models to give to kind of do a compare and contrast to get kind of people uh, to see what I think are the advantages of the model I like. Um, and to do that, I have to look at these three other ones. So one one says, you know, God controls everything. In fact, God predestined everything. And if we're talking about petitionary prayer, which is asking God to act, um, it's hard for me to get motivated to ask God to do something in the future if the future's already been predetermined. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah. But most people don't actually pray like God predestined, even Calvinists. Most people pray like they think their prayers might actually make a difference to God. And mm. I believe that's the case. But most people also retain the view that God can control if God wants to. God can single-handedly bring about some outcome if God d- decides. And they think God is perfectly loving and all-wise. So if this is the case, it seems hard for me to get motivated to pray to God because God's smarter than I am. God's perfectly loving. And God can up and fix things even if I don't ask. In fact, it makes it problematic because. If God can fix things single-handedly, even if we do nothing, but God is on the sidelines, arms folded, sitting back saying, you know, Joe, I'm not going to act. I'm not going to get off my butt unless you ask me. In fact, ask me 19 times. In fact, get everybody in your uh, wineskins group to ask. Then it sounds like we got to beg and plead and cajole and say, pretty please, God, please, yeah. When God could just up and do it, even if we never asked. Um, so that usual way of thinking about a God who can respond, but also can fix 
things single-handedly, and God doesn't sound very loving to me. So what happens usually is people who think about these first two models and see the problems with them go to a third model, which says prayer doesn't change God. It only Mm. changes me. Right, right. And usually these are people in more progressive Christian traditions who think this. And I want to say to them, I do think prayer can change us, but I also think prayer changes God. Not God's nature, but prayer changes what God might do in the future. And so here, open theology really makes a big difference because, well, actually open and relational theology. Because relational theology says what we do can have an effect on God, and prayer is an activity, so prayer can have an effect on God. What open theology says is that God moves through time moment by moment. And that means that what I do in one moment affects God in the next moment, and God can take that relational information and act in new ways in the situation that's presented to God. There's, there's new avenues or new opportunities for God to act that may not have been there had I not prayed. Now, I'm not saying that my prayers make it so that God can control, you know, just like I don't pray, you know, God uh, force Aunt Mary to become a Christian. I don't think God's going to do that because Aunt Mary's got free will. I don't think my prayers for a situation mean that God in the next moment is, can suddenly force and control. I, I'm against that. But because God takes into the divine experience moment by moment, everything that happens in the universe, my prayers can actually make a difference in how God chooses to act in the future. And so therefore, prayer mm. makes a difference in this model. Very interesting. It, it, that kind of raises two more questions. Good. For me. <laughs> yeah, and um, and I'm trying to keep an eye on the time because I don't want to I don't want to go too far over. But um, and and they're kind of related. So when when you say God acts, or, yes. or you know we influence, how does that happen? What does it look like to say God acts? Is that something that through the through the power of God's Spirit, God inspires people creatures to act? And the second question is. What do we then do with the idea of miracles? In, yeah, you know, especially in relation to your response to prayer. I think that's how a lot of people view miracles as in response to prayer. So. Yeah, to say to say God acts is hard to conceptualize because when we talk about other kinds of actions, we usually point in the world to an object over there. We say she acts because she's walking her dog down the street. See that, but. Most Christians, and I'm very traditional on this view at least, think God is omnipresent and think God is a spirit whom we can't see. So what does it mean for an omnipresent spirit to act? Um, I think one of our best analogies comes from the human mind, assuming we all have them, which most people assume. (laughs) Um, These minds seem to be somewhere in our heads in our brains, but we can't see them with a microscope. And these minds seem to act by our making decisions moment by moment. And those decisions then affecting our brain and our bodily members, and then there's a kind of response. So if we think of God as like a universal mind, that's activity is influencing others who then must respond well or poorly to that influence. Then we can say God is a real actor in the universe, 
but not a controller. And then in terms of miracles, we can say God is always acting all the time, but sometimes the response that creatures uh, provide to that activity is unexpected and unusual and ends up doing something really good. And we say, that's a miracle. Um, And I believe in those kind of miracles. I don't believe in miracles that would involve God controlling creatures, because if God can do that, then, you know, why doesn't God mm. prevent evil and all kinds of other issues? Or, or breaking the laws of nature. Or, yes. Or, yeah. yeah why doesn't yeah. God break the laws of nature? Yeah. So um, I've actually, if, uh, this has really been a short explanation of my view of miracles, <laughs> but I've, I've addressed it in several books, but I'd especially recommend to folks a book called Questions and Answers for God Can't. I talk about prayer in more depth there. I talk about miracles in more depth and divine action and lots of other things. This is so good. I, I This is one of those days where I wish we had two hours yeah. to talk, but I, nobody wants to listen to my voice that long. I think I could listen to you that long. Um, uh, I have. I've listened to podcasts you've been on for like two-hour drives. So good. <laughs> I know I could do that. Um, is is there anything else that, that you'd like to say that maybe we haven't covered yet today? Or Well, I think most important for me is the issues of love. Um, That's why I believe in God. That's why I consider myself a Christian and try to follow Jesus. It's the issues of love that motivate me, not only in my family life, but also how I try to act in, you know, this uh, toward strangers and people who don't like me and toward other creatures on the planet. Um, Many people come to open and relational theology because of various questions they have or intuitions they have or concerns they have. And those things are important to me. But I would say the issues of love are the the primary reason I've been attracted to open and relational thinking. Mm. That's really powerful, really powerful. Mm. Well, Tom, thanks for spending some time with me here today. Um, if folks want to you know, find out more about your work. Um, where can they find you? I know, I know you've, you're located in lots of places in the internet. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I have a personal website, my full name, Thomas J Ord, J A Y O O R D Thomas J A Y. Um, and you could also find me at the center for open and relational theology. That's the letter C the number four and then O R T.com. Um, those are probably the best places. Very good. Very good. Any any new um, books or projects coming out soon? Yes. That you I'm, can talk about? <laughs> uh, I'm currently writing a book with the provocative title, The Death of Omnipotence. And Ooh, I'm going to okay. make an argument that the Bible doesn't have an omnipotent God and it's philosophically uh, incoherent. And there, there's all kinds of problems with uh, omnipotence. And then I'm going to offer an alternative view of God's power to replace omnipotence. Excellent. Excellent. Well, maybe, maybe we can have you back after that comes out. Oh, and, I'd love that. Uh, Cause I've still got like, <laughs> I told you I have notes over yeah. here. But I haven't <laughs> even looked at, so we got to get to some of that sometime. Uh, I love it. I'm up for that. <laughs> but, <Joe>. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, Tom, thank you so much for being a guest here at accidental tomatoes today. So appreciate the work that you're doing um, and making yourself so accessible um, to, to folks like me and, and folks that listen to this podcast who are just, you know, trying to find, um, 
trying to find some reasonable way to live on this planet. Mm, yeah. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Joe. Great. Thank you so much. Once again, I would really like to thank Tom for spending some time to talk with me for this episode. There was so much in that conversation that I just found to be so useful and valuable and, and meaningful. And I hope maybe you did as well. As always, if you have comments or feedback on this episode or suggestions for future interviews or episode ideas, um, please reach out to us on any of our social media channels. You can just do a search for Accidental Tomatoes on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and drop us a note there, or you can send us an email to accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And so until next time, my friends, Please keep on growing outside the fences and join us again for another brand new episode of the Accidental Tomatoes Podcast.